Stories are powerful. It's not about the clothes. The clothes are what we can attain that remind us of the moment when we first saw the film. When I saw it, I thought, that is what I should marry big in. Well, who's it by? What's the label? No one. I found it in a vintage shop. The bride wore a dress by no one. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. We are going to be doing an incredibly special episode talking about our favorite costumes in honor of TCM's Follow the Thread theme. Samantha's not with us, but she's here in spirit, and I have her top three lists that she sent me, so we can include those here. But in her stead, I have an amazing special guest this week, one of TCM's Follow the Thread speakers. She is the costume designer on some of your favorite movies, including Raiders of the Lost Ark, American Werewolf in London, the Thriller video. You don't get much bigger than Deborah Landis. Deborah, how are you? I'm really well and better for talking to you, Kristen. Oh my gosh. No, thank you so much for doing this. Outside of your amazing work just in film and music videos, and you were also the president of the Costume Designers Guild. So you are deep in the costume world. I don't think it gets much deeper. No, I think I have everybody on speed dial at this point. (laughs) The world of costume design is small and they're all in my Rolodex. It's a generic question. I want to ask, how does one get into costume design? What was your journey We talk so often about the roles for women in this industry and the struggle, but costume design has always seemed to be an area for women to thrive. What was your journey into getting into this industry and why costumes? I was born loving the stories. It was never about fashion for me. So even though I love clothes, I love dress up better. I love pretending to be somebody else. And I was so typical, and I hope this resonates with your listeners, but I wanted to be backstage, not on stage. I wanted to dress the actors, and I got a lot of pleasure out of it. When I was very young, my parents had a camp in upstate New York. We we used to have bunk night every week. And of course, it really helped me then design Animal House later when I had to make those togas out of sheets. Because... I could make anything out of a paper placemat. I could make anything out of a paper doily. I can do anything with a bath towel. So see my work, see Animal House, and you can see my greatest work. (laughs) One of the questions that I love that Follow the Thread has been looking at is looking at costumes from the past and how they've influenced costumes from the future. What were the classic film costumes that initially struck you as you were embarking on costume design. You've done some throwback period films in your career. How do you implement the fashions of the past with the work you were doing? There's a misunderstanding, and I don't blame bloggers for... I blame bloggers for a lot, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Sites on the internet that find all the anachronisms in period films. Films were never meant to be accurate. No, they were dreams. 
yes, their dreams and their inventions, their interpretations. Every movie that's a period film, ultimately, it will look like the time in which it's made. You just can't get away from the time period. You can't get away from your lens. And remember, Kristen, what business are we in? We're in the entertainment business. Those people on screen, however they're dressed, they have to appeal to the people in the audience. It's a circular kind of thing where costume designers and all designers for the movies were inspired by current fashion and by what's going on now. And then the audience, if they fall in love with the movie, they will then be influenced by the movie's costumes. And so will fashion designers. So it's like a creative engine that keeps going around and around and around. But movies were never supposed to be accurate. Somebody once said to me, Deborah, why is it that the costume designer is asking me about the buttons when the storyline is so ridiculous? <laughs> you know, the storyline would never have happened in that period. Buttons yeah. and zippers are very interesting in costume design. People have very, very strict opinions about clothes that have zippers that shouldn't have zippers or buttons when they shouldn't have buttons. It's controversial. Well, I'll tell you, if they're looking for the zippers and the buttons, the movie hasn't captured their imagination. We don't want you to see the clothes. It's no good if there are great clothes in a bad movie. You want the movie to be great, first and foremost. That's what it's about. Definitely. Do you remember the first costume that you saw in a film that just stopped you in your tracks and you were like, I need to be in this world? Amongst my favorite movies growing up were Singing in the Rain, as Singing in the Rain and Some Like It Hot. And those two films, Singing in the Rain in Color, made the year I was born in 1952, and then Some Like It Hot not long after. Those two films with costumes by Ori Kelly and Singing in the Rain by Walter Plunkett. The greats. I fell in love with those movies. And that's the important thing here is that I fell in love with the films. And then I fell in love with the costumes. Well, that segues us nicely into our top three. So we're doing our top three favorite costumes. It was really hard to do a top three because there's so many great costumes. And when you're working with a lot of clothes in your head and a lot of movies that you've seen, stuff's going to be forgotten. So... I'm really interested to hear from our listeners who have other suggestions for things that I will stupidly say. How did I forget that? I have my three here tries to be a good example of Kristen's favorite thing. My number three is Myrna Loy's party dress from The Thin Man. Now, right. if you're wondering which dress from The Thin Man, it's the dress in the beginning of the film when they're having their Christmas party and the girl shows up to essentially put... Bill Powell's Nick Charles on the case. Nora, played by Myrna Loy, comes in in this black and white, bias-cut, ruffled dress. It's a costume that is very minor in the movie, yet it's always, always captures my attention. I don't know if it's the juxtaposition of the black and white, or if it's the fact that Myrna Loy is so tall and angular, or if it's the different cuts that make it an optical thing. It just draws your eye to it. And it is 
utterly amazing. Deborah, a lot of people love the 1930s pre-code stuff because a bit more salacious with your costuming. You could do cutouts. This Myrna Lloyd dress always captures my attention. What do you think about pre-code fashion? Well, I want to talk a little bit about the dress that you've talked about. Please do. Which it was bias cut. We have no idea what color it was. Very true. It's gray and white or black and white on screen, striped, bias cut. So it's all diagonal with a diagonal in the opposite direction. Costumes designed by Dolly Tree. Dolly Tree was a very famous British theatrical costume designer who worked on the West End, then immigrated to Hollywood, worked at MGM, always as a secondary designer. And in fact, there's a quote by Myrna Loy where she says, let Joan Crawford have Adrian. I have Dolly Tree. And that's yes. I love that dress too. It draws attention to Myrna Loy in that scene, or I should say Nora Charles, her character name in that scene. We don't know if it's blue and white stripe or it could have been a green and white stripe. So there's a lot of talk about that. Myrna Loy had green eyes. It could have been a green stripe. So fascinating in that way. It's kind of a ridiculous dress. These are detectives, and she looks ridiculous. And how she could wear ruffles. She is very angular. But another thing, Kristen, that you should be aware of, these were very small people. Bill Powell was not a very tall man. He may have topped out at 5'9". So these are very small people. But of course, what did Gloria Swanson say? It's the movies that got small. (laughs) They're so big on screen and she looks so tall and thin. And the dress with its diagonal stripes makes her look even taller and a bit ridiculous. And of course, that wonderful thin man wit. We can't forget, and I hope I'm not going on too long. Oh, never. But This was the height of the Depression. So if they could have put a gown in every scene, if anybody's seen The Awful Truth, another one of my big favorites, Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth, and Cary Grant too, she's always wearing these gowns. And Myrna Loy always wearing a gown because this was really escapism to see somebody wearing a gown like that. I would say you pick that dress. My favorite dress in The Thin Man was the dress that she wears at the end. And it's it's a black halter gown and she has a huge diamond pin. It's very low cut, very decollete. And she's wearing a huge diamond bracelets halfway up her arm. I would say that it was beaten silk, like a podange. This is what it used to be called. Podange is skin of the angel. Best name. Right? Podange, silk satin, bias cut. To me, in pictures, it looks like the thinnest. It looks to me like leather, like a black leather dress, but it's just the most beautiful thing. And of course, you could only wear it If your figure was absolutely perfect, you had no breasts, you had no butt, you were just perfect. You had to be Myrtle Loy. And Myrtle Loy and no underwear. No underwear. I don't know whether you're familiar with slant boards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So Myrna never sat down in these dresses. She was on a slant board, kicking back with a cup of coffee, and I'm sorry to say probably a cigarette, because she could not sit down in that organza dress, your striped organza dress, or my podage dress. There is no way. I've seen a lot of pictures of Jean Harlow on the slant boards for her movies. And it's amazing to watch this first Thin Man in the mid-1930s and then watch the series as it develops. We start in the Depression, and as the series continues into World War II, Myrna's dresses get a bit more conservative. They get a bit boxier because she's got to be still a wealthy woman, but a woman in wartime. So you lose a lot of the fun as the series progresses. A lot of people would say we lost the fun when we lost the drinking, but we also lose the costuming too. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. The world became so dark. It's interesting, really, because the audience really did go to the movies to lose themselves in the early 30s. As war became imminent in Europe and really started around 38 in Europe, everything shifted in Hollywood. And it would not have been appropriate for her to be solving murders in an organza ruffle dress. I mean, I would have endorsed it, but I get it. (laughs) Interestingly, my number two is from wartime, 1945. It's from the Christmas film, Christmas in Connecticut. There's a moment in that movie at the beginning. The story is about a soldier played by Dennis Morgan, who is in love with this woman who has sold herself as kind of like a 1940s Martha Stewart played by Barbara Stanwyck. Her introduction is probably one of my favorite character introductions. She's writing this column and talking about, oh, the chestnuts are roasting in the fireplace and my baby is playing and my husband. And as we're seeing her talk about this, the camera is scrolling through this apartment. This fireplace is actually a radiator. She lives in a very small apartment. She's totally lying about everything that she claims she has. But I love her introduction. She's wearing slacks, this white man shirt. She's got long hair. I am a sucker for, well, it wasn't really a 40s trend. It happened a lot in the 30s, too, of women appropriating male clothing. Most people see Marlena Dietrich in the tux in Morocco, and that's what they think of. For me, it's all about Barbara Stanwyck in this sequence because it is masculine in what she's wearing. It's Katherine Hepburn. But she is so 100% feminine in the way she applies it. And of course, she's buying a really expensive mink coat in this scene. So you get that great blend of functional fashion with this incredibly exorbitant over-the-top fur that she's going to be using as an example of her wealth. Screw the husband and kid for her. She wants the coat. It's a great example of costuming working for an actress. Because Barbara Stanwyck was very much a tough-as-nails type of woman but she could always give it a layer of femininity. Christmas in Connecticut is just one of my favorite Christmas movies, but that costume is just so amazing in saying, this is our character, this is our actress. I love it so much. Costumes designed by Edith Head. Edith Head was at that time, now Christmas in Connecticut, a Warner Brothers picture, was released right after VJ Day, right after the war was over, literally just months after the war was over. What you didn't mention, and I did look it up, Barbara Stanwyck, she's wearing, yes, the black trousers. She's lying through her teeth in what she's writing. She's making it all up. 
did you notice she's wearing a cheetah belt? I did not until you mentioned it. Now I'm like, of course, it's right there. You can see it plain as day. Yeah, she's wearing a cheetah belt. So meow. She's got a man shirt on, but it's really, it has bishop sleeves, these big sleeves. It's gorgeous. It falls beautifully over her chest. It's got fabulous collar. So Miss Head was at Paramount, but she had a long relationship and a long collaboration with Barbara Stanwyck, who adored her. Really, Stanwyck had her written into her own contract. So when Stanwyck worked, so did Miss Head. And Paramount loaned Miss Head to Warner Brothers just to design Stanwyck's clothes because the rest of the clothes, the rest of the costumes in Christmas in Connecticut are designed by Milo Anderson, who was a Warner Brothers costume designer. This trust, because that's really what it is. Everybody's naked everybody's afraid. But who's more afraid than actors? They're putting themselves in the center of the frame. It's up to the actors to make us, the audience, believe the story, fall in love with the story, and to be engaged with the outcome. And this requires a lot of vulnerability on the actor's part. Here, Stanwyck had this relationship with Miss Head and trusted that she would read the script, that Miss Head would have a lot of input into the journey of this character. And the character, as you said, she was pretending to be the Martha Stewart of her time. Total screwball comedy. She goes hilarious things trying to pretend that she's a cook and a housekeeper and can do everything. She's renting out babies, and that's the height of hilarity right there. And making pancakes and doing all this stuff in clothes that were not appropriate and into a gingham apron pinafore thing. But this was a real collaboration with Miss Head. If you look at Hollywood history, some of the greatest long-term collaborations have been costume designers and directors and costume designers and actors because you just need that level of comfort. Miss Stanwyck always seemed to wear these very short jackets and these very high-waisted trousers or very high-waisted, look at double indemnity. She had just made double indemnity. Completely the opposite, costumes designed by Edith Head. But you'll see that the clothes and the style of the clothes are very much Stanwyck. She changes these personalities from good to evil and completely silly. But somehow she's always in these high-waisted pants and skirts, short jackets, the Lady Eve, same deal. So if you look at Stanwyck's work with Miss Head, you can say, oh, look at this body of work. Look at this collaboration between these two creatives. Of course, most people love Audrey Hepburn and Givenchy, that's the most legendary one. But I think Barbara Stanwyck and Edith Head need to get some more appreciation because it's tough when you're an actress like Barbara Stanwyck that was known for being so hard in her movies and that what worked with her relationship with Edith is that there is that great level of functionality and femininity that does not get nearly enough love. Edith must have been a genius. 
I met her twice briefly. In terms of collaboration, she worked so closely with Grace Kelly. The many movies that she made with Grace Kelly. She worked closely with Elizabeth Taylor. I know Taylor also worked with Helen Rose. But these are long-term relationships with women who could have asked for anyone. Cutting in briefly to talk about our Patreon. If you're a fan of everything we do here at the show, old Hollywood, classic film, pop culture, consider subscribing like these wonderful patrons, Peter Blitzstein, Laura Stalker, Anne Foster, and Harry Holland. Our Patreon page is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard, starring Jill Clayburgh as Carol Lombard and James Brolin as Clark Gable himself. Please consider subscribing to Ticklish Biz and help us reach that goal so we can talk about it. If we get to 100 subscribers, we're looking forward to posting a deep dive into one of Kristen's most infamous classic quote-unquote films, Does Love Truly Mean Never Having to Say You're Sorry?, If we get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all our opinions on Love Story. Meanwhile, we have all sorts of special content, including our dual shows, doubled features, and based on a true podcast, as well as the series we just concluded, Being Elvis, looking at all of the Elvis biopics, including Baz Luhrmann's 2022 feature of the same name. Patrons also get access to special buttons, as well as free DVDs, and Blu-rays throughout the year. So again, why don't you take a chance and visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, see what you like, and hopefully we'll see you in our Patreon winner circle soon. Now, back to the show. You still get collabs between performers and costumers, but I don't feel it's as rich as it used to be, but maybe that's just wishful thinking. And it also has to do with the structure of Hollywood, the studio system. Remember, Miss Head worked five days a week, as we all did. We went to the studio, which was like going to university, and you worked five days a week. You had your weekends off, more or less, and there were contract players. Elizabeth Taylor was a contract player. So was Stanwyck. So was Betty Davis. These were contract players they more or less had to take who was assigned to them. And the structure of the business has changed. Even if you had a costume designer you really wanted to work with, Kristen, they would probably be in Bucharest or Budapest, South Africa or Sydney, Australia. How would you get that timing right? The process of movie making is just utterly nuts these days. Well, that brings me to my number one. I was going to do a big blob for number one, but Samantha actually snaked one of them. So we can mention them when we talk about Samantha's list briefly. But my number one is from 1957. I love it. You all should know as a long-term person who loves Marilyn Monroe and the Prince and the Showgirl that this dress was going to be number one. It is Elsie Marina's costume from the Prince and the Showgirl. It is probably my favorite Marilyn costume in all of Marilyn's costumes. That's high praise, I know, especially for all the movies that Marilyn did. But I absolutely love this dress. If I were to ever get married, If I was to get married and I was to design a wedding dress, it would just be this dress because it is not just an example of who Elsie Marina is. She wants to be a princess. She can't seem to do that. I love that the character is an actress wearing a costume, playing a part in a movie where we're already aware of the nature of movie making. It has a dual meaning. 
this cream dress that's, of course, incredibly tight curves. It's got like a mermaid flouncy bottom that we get to see twirl when she does her performance in front of the window. It is just a marvel of construction. I love it so much. Every time I see it, it makes me want to cry. I know they sold it at auction maybe a year or two ago. I want to say Julian's or Bonham's, one of them, it just went up for auction recently. This is where I need to have millions of dollars so that I could have purchased this dress. So I hope whoever has it is happy because I really want it. Is it a trivia? I'm looking at it. It's such a simple thing. And it's so demure for Marilyn. And maybe that's the charm of it, is that it's covered up. Maybe just the open neck and those very long, they're actually very long short sleeves. It says that the ladies' costumes were from Beatrice Dawson, but Marilyn Monroe's dresser was Mae Walding. I don't know how they divided the work. No, that's not how it worked. Let me. (laughs) A costumer is not a costume designer. A costumer is someone who dresses the actors. A costume designer is the person who designs the clothes. It does say it was designed by Beatrice Dawson. Looks like she might be, IMDb needs to give her proper credit for actually designing that dress. Exactly. Compared to other Marilyn costumes, of course, Samantha had Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, pretty much all the costumes from that movie on her list. I love that movie. Of course, those costumes are iconic. I wonder if what I love about this dress from The Prince and the Showgirl is, like you were saying, you know, it's based on a Terrence Radigan play overseen by Laurence Olivier. So there is an air of, dare I say, prestige to the production that I think had to be reflected in Marilyn's wardrobe. It's a cream dress. It's not a colorful dress, which is already an anthema to Marilyn. I totally agree with you. And I'm just looking at Beatrice Dawson's credits. She was the real deal. She designed Tom Jones and she designed Brief Encounter, the television movie. She has a very very long CV as a proper British costume designer. Maybe what you love about it is that in some ways the dress is very Marilyn, but in other ways it's also completely appropriate, which is not Marilyn at all. There's these wonderful, wonderful stories about Marilyn Monroe, like when Jean-Louis went to fit her at her house in Brentwood. You know that story. Comes downstairs to answer the door wearing a mink coat. He walks in and she takes it off and she's naked and she says, I just want you to see what you're working with. (laughs) It's my favorite Marilyn story. (laughs) And I'm looking at this dress and thinking... Maybe what you love about it is that how demure it is that this young woman wants to be a princess and she has purchased this for herself or had this made for herself because it is appropriate. But you don't get away from the waist, that tight waist. And also at the waist, it seems to be, and I was looking at it, it seems to be really pulled at the waist. It's folded at the waist so that everything accentuates that hourglass figure. 
I maintain Prince and the Showgirl is Marilyn at her most beautiful, even though it was a very hard time for her to film that movie. She was having troubles with Arthur Miller. I think she had just lost a child at that point. So there was a lot of trauma in making the movie. And yet, because she's a consummate professional, you never saw it at all. And if anything, maybe all of that deep love that she had, it shines through in her look, in the costume. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. Again, whoever bought it at auction, I hope you worship that dress appropriately because it deserves it. It's a very interesting choice of yours, Kristen, because it's a very unusual choice. It's a beautiful dress made by Miss Dawson, probably made to order, incredibly demure. You could even say virginal. You could absolutely wear it to be married in. It has all those pearls on the sleeve and down the side. Looks very much like a wedding dress. You could wear it today. Absolutely has not dated at all. Let's just use the word timeless. Let's be frank, a lot of what Monroe wore in her career was attention grabbing. And this is not. Samantha's list, of course, is very Samantha-y. And I wanted to read it because she could not be with us today. She said her number three was Eva Marie Saint's rose applique dress in North by Northwest. She was really into her use of simple jewelry as well. Her number Mm -hmm. two was, of course, Marilyn's Diamonds are a Girl's Best Friend, the pink dress from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And her number one was the Helen Rose, Liz Taylor, the white ball gown in A Place in the Sun as number one, which those are all iconic in their own way. Much like my number one, the Prince and the Showgirl outfit, Eva Marie Saint, that rose dress, that's a dress you can go out and wear anytime. It's a cocktail dress. You encompasses what I love about the 50s, which is the fantasy of every woman was dressing up in pearls and a cocktail dress to like vacuum. I like that. I can't say that I miss it. We don't know if it was actually ever completely true, but I love it so much. We did a whole episode on Place in the Sun, but that white dress, if we're talking about character versus defining moments, the transition to Liz Taylor being an adult from being a child. Yes, However, I'm going to add something. Please, please do. We at that moment have to be Montgomery Clift. Definitely. We we have to look at her and just be amazed. Because in that dress, at that moment, she is an alien from another planet. She is a goddess who has come down from Aphrodite, from Olympus, with that perfect skin, that flower-filled bodice. So some of this, in terms of the power of film direction, these directors are no dopes. When movies are made, we can only do so much. Costume designers work with actors to help create people, real people who the audience will care about. We can do that. But ultimately, we're just creating a piece of the story. And that story is going to be put together in the cutting room, however that director wants it to be. It's the director's vision. So when we cut to Elizabeth Taylor in that dress, that's the wow moment. When Grace Kelly walks through that door 
And Jimmy Stewart looks at her and she makes a turn and she has that dress on with that white organza skirt. She says to him, what do you think? We're supposed to be wow. In My Fair Lady, when Eliza Doolittle, Audrey Hepburn, appears at the top of the stairs, we're supposed to just lose our minds. So that's the director. That's the director stopping the movie and saying, look what I have for you to see. Oh my God, can you believe this moment? Do we love this person? Whoever that person is, we have to fall in love. We have to be enchanted. It's enchantment. And before I leave you, I just want to go back and reiterate the overview. Because in our world, in the world of costume design, we really don't talk about outfits. We don't talk about shirts and shoes and dresses and gowns. We're always trying to look at the whole film or the whole project or the 16 episodes in the season. Where does she start? And where is she going? And what happens in between? And what are the obstacles? So the story is always going to be our object. And we design for that moment. And if the director wants to stop the show and say, look at the top of the stairs, we're seeing Grace through Jimmy Stewart's eyes. We're seeing Marilyn through Laurence Olivier's eyes. The director is putting us there. And I think that's a very important lesson, especially for everyone in your listening audience who absolutely adores the clothes, to know that there is a greater vision that's working on all of this. There is a mastermind. There is a story that's being told. And if we fall in love with one piece and want it, that's that's great. That's okay. But that's not how it was designed. (laughs) Deborah, your insights today have been so amazing. I wish we could have you on for longer, but I know you have things you got to get to. We thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. Where can people find you on social media? Anything you want to throw out there that they should be keeping an eye out for? Absolutely. Well, I'm the director of the David C. Copley. Center for Costume Design at UCLA. So if you're looking for me, look for me at UCLA, David C. Copley Center at UCLA. We're all costume design all the time. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can send us your thoughts and comments to our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. You can email them directly to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or send them to us via Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. If you search for at Ticklish Biz, we are on all podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we would love to hear your thoughts in a great, insightful review on Apple Podcasts because they do help get the word out about us. Please be sure to stop over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. We will be releasing all sorts of great stuff, including episode on Double Features, our podcast looking at movies remade again and again. We're looking at the sultry summertime remake of Out of the Past, 1984's Against All Odds, and things get steamy and silly. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. You can also catch up with our series Being Elvis, where we reviewed six Elvis biopics, including the new one that is still in theaters today. 
we'd love to get closer to doing episodes on Gable and Lombard or help Samantha see a little women or a godfather. So you can find out more at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter, again, at ticklish underscore biz. We are doing our Summer Under the Stars contest every day. You can submit your favorite movie from one of the stars airing on TCM Summer Under the Stars. Multiple entries will help you get one step closer to winning some original artwork designed by Samantha Ellis. You pick the star. She will make a great image and we will put it on a mug or a notebook or something and send it to you. You can have an original piece of ticklish biz art. We're doing that throughout the entire month of August. Head over to our Twitter and be sure to follow and like us. But we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. See you all then.